Do you ever struggle with remembering details from your travels? Then I've got something special for you. How would you like a better way to keep track of all the things you see and experience in Scotland? A way to keep those special memories and all the details fresh for years to come. My new Scotland travel journal might just be what you need. It includes daily journaling prompts to help you start writing about your day, lots of space for doodling and notes, prompts to reflect on your trip overall, and suggestions for things to do that help you make more meaningful connections with Scotland. There's also inspiration for your travel bucket list, a map to draw your route, space to keep track of your travel details, and some Gaelic and Scottish phrases to try while you're here. All you have to do is print out the journal, fold the pages in half and start writing. The Scotland Travel Journal is the perfect companion for your upcoming trip to Scotland. Find it in the Watch Me See online shop or visit the link in the show notes. And now, let's get on with the show. Hello there, and welcome to Wild for Scotland, a podcast full of immersive travel stories from Scotland. I'm your host, Cathy Kamleitner. Wild for Scotland helps you connect with Scotland and dream about future adventures, regardless of your travel plans. Each episode starts with a travel story to whisk you away. Then I'll tell you some of my top tips to visit Scotland for yourself. So lean back and enjoy. Let's travel to Scotland. Hello again, and thanks for tuning in for another episode of Wild for Scotland. This season is all about road trips, and as your personal driver, I'm taking you on scenic routes all over Scotland. Of course, we'll stop to see what we can find along the way. From jaw-dropping viewpoints to historical places, we'll discover how you can make your road trip more interesting. Today's episode feels a bit like a throwback to season one, because we're going to an island. You didn't think I had used up all my island stories yet, did you? The Outer Hebrides are the stuff of my dreams. It's been three years since my visit, and yet I can still picture those white, sandy beaches, hear the soft lilt of Gaelic in the local cafes, and remember the atmosphere of those historical sites like it was yesterday. The Isle of Lewis holds a special place in my heart because it was the only island I got to explore in depth and by car. That gave me the opportunity to see a lot of the island and I spent a jam-packed day taking in some of its historical sites, beautiful beaches and more. Some of these we're going to visit today. This is Pete and Sands. many things left in the world that really puzzle people. 
Modern science allows us to explain the wonders of the ancient world, how the pyramids were built and their purpose. We know about physics and astronomy, how the universe began and how it might end. But there are still places that pose more questions than the answer. The standing stones of Callanish on the rugged west coast of the Isle of Lewis are one of those places. Like giant question marks, they stand out from the landscape, surrounded by fields and scattered settlements. Do they illustrate the stories of legends? Are they a place of scientific research or a site of worship? Why they were built in this location is still a mystery. The best we can do to explain their purpose is to make an educated guess. They were probably used as some kind of astronomical observatory. They align with the movements of the sun and the moon at certain times of the year. Many theories have been spun about the standing stones at Callanish and other stone circles around Scotland. But after thousands of years, none of them can be conclusively proven. However, this uncertainty doesn't take away from the awe that overcomes me as I find myself face to face with the monolith that stands at the centre of the main circle at Callanish. I'm on the Isle of Lewis. I arrived, unlike most people, on foot from Harris along the Hebridean Way. After a celebratory pint and a well-deserved rest, I hired a car in Stornoway and hit the road. My mission? To explore the west coast of Lewis. It's still early when I leave Stornoway. The road is quiet as I drive past the shealings which were once used by local farmers to stay close to their animals on their summer pastures. Some are bright and colourful, still in use or at least relatively well kept. And others, the colours are fading, paint chipped, windows broken or boarded up, roofs that look ready to collapse. There is not much else in the landscape, a small woodland in the distance, a bright blue loch and always the dead straight furrows and trenches left by the cutting of the peat. It is an eerie landscape, seemingly empty and yet so full of stories, myths and legends. The standing stones of Callanish fit perfectly into this landscape, a place so wonderful and mystical at the same time. I park up at the still-closed visitor centre near the main site and start wandering down the path. There are, in fact, several stone circles in this area. Callanish 1, 2 and 3, 4, 8 and 10. Their numbered names evidence of how little we know about these sites. Certain that many are still hidden in the ground. Built 5,000 years ago, they were abandoned around 800 BC and forgotten for centuries. For thousands of years, these stones lay dormant, resting under an ever-growing layer of peat. Until in 1857, Sir James Matheson, who owned the Isle of Lewis at the time, 
gave the order to dig them up. People had always known there were stones buried here, but no one expected how deep they would have to dig. 4.8 metres, that's how tall the central monolith stands at the site, dwarfing me as I stand below it, looking up at a smooth slab of rock. I can see the fine lines that are drawn across the rock, the dimples and bumps, the cracks and the furrows, filled with lichen and moss. There are different colours on the surface, patches of red next to white lines and different shades of grey, testament to the plethora of materials that were crushed together to form the stone millions of years ago. Louisian gneiss is the oldest rock in Britain, over 3,000 million years old. Below the monolith, there is a chambered tomb, and both are surrounded by a circle of standing stones. They are shorter than the central stone, but still much taller than me. Rows of stones lead away from the centre, radiating out to the east, west and south. To the north, two rows of stones form an avenue, a grand approach to the centre. I follow the paths and walk around the stones, mesmerised by their shapes and outlines. Sometimes smooth and straight, like firm cake cut with a knife. Others rugged, almost serrated, like they were ripped apart by giant hands. The lines on these stones remind me of a nightmarish painting I saw as a child, The Scream by Edward Monk. But somehow these stones look at ease, molten into shape and untouched by the passage of time. I rip myself loose from their magic. Other visitors are slowly arriving and for me, it's time to move on. I continue my journey along the west coast of Lewis. In the township of Carloway, I turn left on a tiny road that leads out to the coast. Lewis is one of the best places to see the traditional architecture that once dotted all the land. Blackhouses. These were small buildings made from stone and earth, with thatched roofs and tiny windows. Blackhouses had no chimneys, the smoke escaped only slowly through the porous roof. Eventually, many of the black houses were upgraded with chimneys or abandoned for more modern dwellings. But here in Geranen, you can still see what life was like in a traditional crofting township. I arrive in the village bustling with people. A large group of tourists from Germany has just arrived and I join them as we're ushered into one of the more modern-looking buildings in the village. It has two chimneys and windows at the gable end. Long benches line the walls and we huddle together as their guide tells us the story of these houses. We are surrounded by artefacts, remnants of the people who lived here until the 1960s. We hear about life in traditional black houses, the soot from the peat fires, the blackened not only the walls and the roof, but also the lungs of the people inside. 
Improvements to these houses were made over time. Chimneys were added, windows were placed and animals moved out. The house we're in was lined with wood, given a fresh lick of paint, modernised for a better life. But other buildings in the village were left untouched, or rather restored back to the way black houses used to be. As I wander through the village, I come across one of them. The walls not much higher than my shoulders, an illusion as the turf was piled up around its foundation, making the ground outside higher than the floor inside. The roof is thatched with cereal straw and weighed down with nets and stones. There are no windows, just one opening, the door. I step inside, or rather down into the house. It is dark in here and cold. Although it is a sunny day, the air is cooled by wind blowing up from the bay, seeping through the cracks of the walls and the roof. There is no wood to keep out the cold. Timber lining supports the roof, but I can see the turf peeking through the gaps between the beams. On the far side of the room sits a man on a long wooden bench. In front of him stands a big loom with which he weaves a piece of cloth that the islands are known for, Harris Tweed. Every cloth of Harris Tweed has to be made according to the Harris Tweed Act of Parliament from 1993. It must be made by islanders on the Outer Hebrides, weaved in their homes on hand-powered looms, or in this case, foot-powered. The man steps on two treadles below the loom, turning wheels, moving levers back and forth, up and down. They are tied to the frame by leather straps that look like they've been in place for decades, and they probably have. Hundreds of green threads are mounted on the loom. Every now and then, the man stops treading to inspect them and fiddles about to fix a broken thread. The orange filling yarn is wound onto two wooden shuttles lying on the woven cloth in front of him. A faded yellow cloth rolled onto a large tube below his knees. The man is making Harris tweed the way it has been made for centuries and it is hypnotising to watch him weave and to listen to the sounds of the loom. As I step back outside into the village, I am immediately transported back to reality. A piper is playing the bagpipes in the distance, his music carried away by the wind. The paths through the village are bustling with people, and I decide to leave them behind. I follow a faint grassy path up the slopes behind the houses. The west side coastal walk leads from here to Dalmore and Dalbeg, crossing Croftland and Moorland that is edged between the road and the rugged Atlantic coast. I follow the way markers. Every now and then, the grass gives way to big slabs of grey rock, revealing how thin the layer of soil is here on the edge. I walk until I am the only person around. 
I reach a viewpoint with a cairn, a pile of rocks marking the path. From up here, I can see the little islands and rocky outcrops littering the sea just off the coast. In the distance, I see bright lines of white sand, beaches or the stuff of dreams. On my way back, I see the bay by the village, the piled up grey pebbles at the top of the beach turn into white sand that makes the water look green. There are furrows on the other side of the village, running up the hill. They are run rigs, or lazy beds, long strips of land that were allocated to crofters, ploughed and prepared for vegetable planting, and often fertilised with seaweed. Their way of life deeply branded into the landscape. From up here, I can see how well these black houses blend into the landscape, forming soft humps on the uneven ground. If they were abandoned today, they might also get covered by peat, as the millennia move on. I bid farewell to the village. The road carries me south and then west once again, past the standing stones of Callanish and on to another island, the Isle of Great Bernera. The road to Bernera is narrow and winding, often single track, rising and falling steadily as it crosses the Croftland. Eventually, I reached a narrow white bridge that leads over to the island. It was built in 1953 and, like the bridge to the Isle of Seal, it is known as the Bridge Over the Atlantic. Somewhere I read that it was only built because locals threatened to blow up the hillside with dynamite to construct their own causeway. Today I'm sure this bridge is one of the reasons why there is still a thriving community on the island and numbers are rising, slowly but steadily. The road now becomes even narrower and twistier. I only have four miles to go until I reach its end, but the drive feels like it's taking an eternity. Up a steep hill, down a bold slope, I shift gears frantically, trying my best to keep the engine happy and letting faster traffic overtake me at passing places. As I turn around another corner, I watch the landscape open up as the coast comes into view. One last climb up a steep hill, and suddenly the road comes to an end. I park up next to a big white camper van, wondering how they managed to drive down this road. I follow a soft sandy track that turns into a path that winds down towards the beach of Bosta. The sand is golden, and the dunes topped with a thin layer of soil covered in grass and macare, that characteristic flower meadow you can find all over the Scottish west coast. There are daisies and buttercups, purple clover and more flowers whose names I don't know. I sit down in a big piece of driftwood and watch the waves roll onto the shore. Crystal clear water laps around the rocks. In the distance, 
I see the craggy outlines of the islands offshore, like spiky teeth sticking out above the horizon, or standing stones peeking out from the peat. Reluctantly, I return to my car, envying the drivers of the camper van as I walk past their lounge chairs where they sit red wine glasses in their hands, looking out towards the setting sun. I follow the road back off Bernera, now with a little more confidence than on the way up. My last stop of the day would be the same as my first, the Callanish standing stones. As the sun dips below the horizon, a thin belt of orange glow appears above the hills in the distance. The rest of the sky is covered in clouds and looks purple and grey. Not quite the sunset I had hoped for, but a magical sight nonetheless. The moon and the stars are still hiding behind a layer of clouds as darkness sets in around me. There is no light to align with the stones today, no constellations in the sky. In this moment, the stones serve no clear purpose other than being something to marvel at, a miracle that makes my head spin, a place between peat and sands that reminds me of the passing of time. enjoyed this road trip on the Isle of Lewis. I actually visited quite a few more places on my day driving around the island. I just couldn't possibly fit them all into this story. If you want to find out what else you can do on Lewis, you can always check out the post I wrote about this drive on my Scotland blog. I'll pop the link in the show notes. And now, before we get to my top tips for a road trip on Lewis, let's take a quick detour to hear a story about our sponsors. Now it's time for the practical part of the show. Here are my top five travel tips for a road trip on the Isle of Lewis. Tip number one, avoid the weekend. When you're on Lewis and Harris, it's important to keep in mind that most things close on Sundays. That includes restaurants and shops, but also visitor centres and attractions. I drove around the island on a Saturday and even then it was difficult to find an open cafe or shop and I actually had to return to Stornoway to get something to eat. So my advice is to pack your own lunch or try to avoid travelling on a weekend. Tip number two, stay at the Black House Village. Yes, you can stay there. Some of the buildings at the Black House Village have been converted into self-catering accommodation that include a bunkhouse for groups and a few family cottages. You get to wake up to the sound of the sea and stay in the village long after the tour groups have gone. Tip number three, learn about Harris Tweed. The tradition of weaving Harris Tweed is inseparable from the Outer Hebrides. There are many places to visit where you can learn about this local hero, but if you follow my itinerary, consider stopping at the Carloway Mill Visitor Centre, And of course, see a loom in action at the Black House Village. Tip number four, tour the Iron Age house on Bosto Beach. 
At the far end of Boston Beach stands the replica of an Iron Age house that was reconstructed after a big storm in the 90s revealed the remnants of an entire village here in the dunes. Today it's open to visitors and there are tours around the house. Unfortunately, the house is closed at the moment because of COVID, but hopefully it will reopen next year. Tip number five, end your day at McNeil's in Stornoway. If you're looking for a nice pub to end your day, head to McNeil's in Stornoway. After I left the Callanish Stones for the second time, I found my way to the pub, ordered an Isle of Harris gin and listened to some live music while chatting with locals. It's a great place to wind down from a busy day on the road. And with this, I send you off to dream about your own road trip to the Isle of Lewis. One of the ready-made itineraries I'm working on will take in the best of the Outer Hebrides, so sign up to be added to the waitlist now and keep your eyes peeled for an update soon. Next week, we're back on the mainland, driving down a section of a road trip that is arguably Scotland's most famous drive. Can you guess where we're going? Thank you so much for listening to Wild for Scotland. Did you know I send out a newsletter every time a new episode launches? I always share behind-the-scenes stories and photos, and this week I'm also including some tips for books to read about the Isles of Lewis and Harris. You can sign up via the link in the show notes. Wild for Scotland is written and hosted by me, Cathy Kamleitner. Fran Tarowskis is the producer and editor of the show. Podcast art is by Lizzie Vaughan Knight, the Tartan Trailburner, and all original music is composed by Bruce Wallace. Until next time, when we travel down a different road in Scotland. If you're still here, listening all the way to the very end, it means you've probably got your hands full. So let me take this opportunity to remind you that I don't just write immersive travel stories. I also plan unforgettable itineraries for Scotland. And it's never been easier to follow one of my routes. Head to watchmesee.com forward slash shop to browse my ready-made Scotland itineraries and turn your travel dreams into reality.